We're in this series called The Gospel, and uh, so if you haven't been trekking along with us, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. But as we kind of get ready for this week's conversation, uh, I was thinking about this $10 bill. Uh, Believe it or not, Pastor Aiden gave this to me. I couldn't believe he had one, right? But uh, this $10 bill, interesting, right? He might not get it back, I'm not sure. But it makes me think of something. It makes me think of the U.S. Treasury Department. Uh, The U.S. Treasury Department, when they want to train their staff on how to spot counterfeit money, they don't make their staff study counterfeit bills. That's interesting, right? They don't have them study all the different kinds of ways people make counterfeit. That's not what they do. When they want to train their staff to spot counterfeits, what they do is this. They have them study immerse themselves in the real thing. So their staff becomes so familiar with what a real dollar bill, or in this case, $10 bill looks like, that anything that is counterfeit, they'll be able to spot. Why? Because they know what the real thing looks like. Why do I tell you that? It's interesting, right? I'm going to put this under here. It's interesting because that's why we're having this conversation. So we're having this conversation on the gospel. We live at a time when people have bought in to counterfeit gospels, replacing cheap and fake substitutes for the real thing. And you know what happens when that happens? It causes people to misplace their hope. It causes people to misalign their passions because they've attached to something that they assume is the good news that's gonna bring them hope. And in so doing, sometimes you know what happens with that? It causes sometimes people to malign the very name of Jesus, making him a mascot for their ideologies and their agendas. I can tell you this, it's this phenomenon that has caused some to, over my 30 years of being a pastor, kind of want me as a pastor and a minister of the gospel to stand up and speak out and for and against certain things. And I would tell you, I will not and have not because I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I want to do week out and week in is hold up the real thing. Because I want us to become so immersed in the real truth of the gospel of Jesus that we can recognize fake, that we can recognize counterfeits. Jesus is not a mascot for our agenda. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. He is the King. And the true gospel of Jesus is the hope of the world, the hope for our country, the hope for our communities, the hope for our marriages, the hope for our families, and everything in between. And so, when we become immersed in it, we'll be able to spot and reject counterfeits. We'll be able to expose idols in our life. The gospel of Jesus supersedes all philosophies of life. The gospel of Jesus supersedes any human ideology, any political platform, party, or personality. You see, this book, God is the ultimate author of this book called the Bible. That's why we wanna listen to him. Jesus is the central character. The Holy Spirit is the primary guide. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus is the overarching story. That's why we're doing this series. I want some of you to get it for the very first time. 
That's my desire. My hope and desire is that some of you for the first time will say yes to Jesus, that you'll get it. That you'll get what? That God loves you. That you'll recognize I am a sinner. That Jesus died for my sin while I was still in my sin. That he was buried, that he rose again. And that when I say yes to him, I can have forgiveness of sin, be part of God's family, have life everlasting. For some of you, I desperately desire that you get it for the first time, that you say yes to Jesus. But we've said this, the gospel is not just God's get out of hell plan, right? It's, it's not just the ABCs, it's the A to Z. I want you to grow in it. I want some of you to get it for the first time and I want all of us to grow in it all the time, right? It's the swimming pool, so to speak, that we jump into. And I want us to grow into it so that we can give it away. That's why we got to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That's why we're saying it. And so this book that we're using by J.D. Greer, right? We're just kind of inspiring a series called Gospel, right? In there, he has a prayer that we're encouraging to pray every day, right? And we've just been ripping that thing apart because in it is the richness and robustness of the gospel. We started with this. Here's how the prayer goes. In Christ, there's nothing I can do that would make you love me more and nothing I've done that makes you love me less. We start, this is what we said, that's all about gospel acceptance and gospel identity. That in Christ, I'm accepted, not because of what I do, because of what he did. And I am who God says I am. Last week, Pastor Aiden took it a step further and he said, well, let's go further. Your presence, God, and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. That's the satisfaction that you find in the gospel. Listen, this is what Pastor Aiden did a great job teaching us. That, that the gospel says this, that God is not simply a means to my satisfaction. That's why some of us are disappointed with God, right? Because he's not giving me what I want that I think will satisfy me. But he's the ends to my satisfaction. That satisfaction is found in him. That's the gospel. Which leads us to the next part of the prayer, and it says this. We're going to look at this today. As you have been to me, so I'll be to others. What is this? I'd write it down this way. Go ahead and take some notes. I'd write it down. That's gospel transformation. Or you can say this. You don't want to write that big word. That's gospel change. You ever ask yourself, uh, what is it that is a sign? What, what, what is the indicator that tells you that you're a Christian? What's the sign? How do you know? I know there's some of you, like, I, I asked Jesus into my life, right? Accepted him into my life, prayed this prayer, and then you spend the rest of your life working really hard so that you might be able to show people that you really are a Christian, right? Because for some, it's like, well, the sign is this. You know, when you become a Christian, you work really hard, you go to church, you read your Bible, you get Christian t-shirts and bumper stickers, you post, you Facebook post uh, uh, certain Christian verses, or you, you, you get certain opinions, or whatever the case may be. It's like, you work really hard to be a good good Christian. And somewhere in there, that kind of thinking takes away from the power of the gospel. Where does gospel transformation come from? Write this down and then we're going to tease it out. This is so fascinating. Gospel transformation, ready, responds to the gospel by extending to others what I experienced from God in the gospel. That's it. 
That's, that's the transformation of the gospel. Gospel transformation is a response to the experience of the gospel. It's experiencing the gospel that becomes the motivation, the power, the catalyst to live and to extend what you've experienced in the gospel to others. Your entire life as a follower of Christ is a response to what you're experiencing in the gospel. What, what a fascinating thing, that you can respond from what you've experienced. It's a life that's transformed by the gospel. The entire Christian life is a response to the gospel. And that's what the Bible calls worship. Did you know that? Your life is an act of worship when you're a follower of Christ. Some of you know this verse, I don't have a, a slide for it, but Romans 12 says this, it says, in view of God's mercy, in view of the gospel, it says, I want you to present your bodies as living sacrifices. I want you to present, and then he says, this is your spiritual act of worship. He says, I want you to be transformed then by the renewing of your mind. See, gospel transformation is a response to the mercy of God found in the gospel. Here's the way I would say it. A person, you ready? Stay with me. A person that has experienced the kindness, the grace, the love, and the generosity found in the gospel is gonna respond to what they've experienced from God in the gospel by extending kindness and love and grace and generosity to others. That's gospel transformation. It's not like I work really hard to be these things, but I have received these things, I'm gonna extend what I have received. I'm gonna extend what I've experienced. How's that look? Well, for the sake of today, and we'll, we'll be three, just three, okay? Three gospel <clears throat> responses that I want you to write down, okay? So get your pen ready, because I think some of them are challenging, okay? First is this, what does this look like when it begins to show up? Well, when I begin to experience the gospel and it transforms me, here's where it begins. It starts with an impulse of kindness, that will selflessly leverage my life for the sake of others. Just go ahead and write that down. It's an impulse, I like that, right? It's an impulse, an instinct. It's, it, that impulse gets trained in me because of what I received, of kindness. True followers of Christ who truly experience the power of the gospel will be the kindest people on the planet. You know why? Because no one on the planet has experienced more profound and robust kindness than somebody who has experienced the gospel and is a true follower of Jesus. That's a fascinating statement. The gospel is God's selfless kindness on center stage. Did you know that? Do you ever think about it that way? Let me show you a couple of verses. Let's start in Titus. Look at this, it says, but when the, say the word out loud, go ahead. When the what? Kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. He what? Saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Look at this in Ephesians. It says this, but because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, word for sin. It's by grace you've been saved. You can't do it on your own. And God raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Look at this. Expressed in his what? Say the word out loud. His what? Kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. 
It's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That word kindness, the Greek word is just this, krastuomai. Yeah, say that. Kind of impress your friends, right? Krastuomai, right? Here's what it means. It's an action of serving, being useful, being gracious. When you think of kind, just do this with me for a minute. When you think of being kind, what do you think about? You got a thought? Like, like if you're like me, I, here's what I think about. I think of the little girl who sat in class and smiled and never got in trouble, right? And so it's kind of a passive view I have of kindness. I think it's just somebody who stays out of trouble, follows the rules, and smiles at you. Oh, they're kind, right? I mean, they don't say anything that insults you, or they don't, they're just kind, right? And yet, here's what I want you to know. Kindness, when the Bible talks about kindness, it has way more texture to it than that. It's a roll up your sleeves kind of word. That kindness isn't just polite. That's part of it, right? But kindness is actually like, I'm gonna do something and here's what I'm gonna do. Kindness is leveraging your life on purpose. Like I'm gonna leverage my life on purpose for the benefit of someone else. And I'm gonna serve them. Even if they can't do anything in return for me. That's texture, right? That's the gospel. It's exactly what God did for us in Jesus. He leveraged his life for our benefit. Look at Philippians 2. Look at this. Look at this. One of my favorite passages. In your, the way you relate with each other, have the same mindset as Jesus, who being in very nature God, we've talked about that at, at, at our campus, right? Did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So he had every right I'm God. Rather, he made himself nothing. What did he do? He leveraged his life by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, and he did it clear to becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The gospel is God's kindness in action. Jesus leveraged his life for our benefit. In Jesus... God gave up his rights for my needs. Now here's the kicker. And I wanna make some, some implication application here. There's a passage in Romans that a lot of people don't know. It talks about God's kindness. And I love it. Because a lot of people are like, man, you know, how does this transformation happen? And a lot of people are guilted into doing the right thing. Guilted into following God. Guilted into uh, obeying and behaving. But look at what Romans chapter two says. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his, say the word out loud, kindness. God is a kind God. Forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's what? Kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. No slide for this, but write this down somewhere. It is the kindness of God that leads to a gospel turnaround in your life. That's what he's saying. That's what repentance is. It's a gospel turnaround. That it's the kindness of God that does that. Let me ask you a question, and then let's make some application. When's the last time, you ready? We're just talking, you and me. When's the last time you have, you have dwelt on God's kindness towards you found in Jesus? Just think about that for a second. When's the last time you've done it? 
The more I, it's like a tree. If you could picture a tree, Jesus said, abide in me. The more I dwell in his kindness found in the gospel, the more I produce the fruit of kindness that I experience in the gospel. That's what he's saying. I begin to realize how kind God's been to me. Here's the problem. The more I dwell in his kindness, the more I produce his kindness. Let's just, I'm just going to be honest with you today. Here's the problem for some of us. For some of us, we dwell more in the news. And we dabble in the good news. And what would happen if we reversed that and said, I'm going to dwell in the good news and dabble in the news? Just being honest, right? I'm not picking. For some of us, we dwell more in Facebook. Come on. I read a secular, secular news guy this week said, man, the amount of people and the amount of time people are putting in Facebook. Some of us dwell more in Facebook than we do in his book, which talks about his kindness. What would happen if we begin to dwell in his book and dabble in Facebook? You see what I'm saying? You see, here's what Ephesians says in some other passage. It says, I want you then, here's the response. Be kind, compassionate to one another. First Corinthians says, love, response to the love we received is patient. Love is, there it is, kind. Now, Galatians says, fruit of spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness. Right? So somehow, I need to ask myself, has this selfless serving kindness that I receive from God, has it created in me an impulse of selfless serving kindness to others? Answer that for yourself. Are you actively kind? Are you actively kind? It is, a, is it a fruit that grows as a result of dwelling in the gospel? Now listen, that's different. I didn't ask you this. Being a fruit that grows as a result of dwelling in the gospel is different than it being a virtue that I paste onto my life. If you watch what I'm saying here and you go out and say, I gotta be more kind, you're missing the point, honestly. Because it's not a virtue I paste on the outside of my life. D did you know this? Let's think about this. You can be kind for the wrong reasons. Did you know that? You're saying, Dan, help me understand that. Well, if I'm kind to you because you've been kind to me, all I'm doing is saying, well, the only reason I'm being kind is because you were kind. Jesus said, man, that's a piece of cake. It's easy to be kind to people who are kind to you. Or, or think about this. I can be kind for selfish reasons. I'll be kind to you so that you'll be kind to me. Like my reason to be kind to you is so that somehow you'll give me something down the road. You see how that works? Like I can be kind with selfish motives, the truth is. That's not gospel transformation. Gospel transformation is extending kindness as an impulse to receiving kindness from God that I did not deserve. Receiving a kindness from God even though I had nothing to give. One author put it this way, kindness is humbly giving of ourselves in love and mercy to others who may not be able to give anything back who sometimes don't deserve it, and who frequently don't thank us for it. That's a roll up your sleeves kind of kindness, right? 
Basically, he says, kindness means a, a way of thinking that leads to doing thoughtful deeds for others. Uh, you know, Jesus told a story. You can write this passage down, Luke 10. Uh, some of you have heard it. Hospitals are named after it. But it's an interesting, it's kind of a description of kindness, I think. He was asked a question about loving your neighbor, and this guy says, who's my neighbor? Remember that? And he tells this story that, as Jesus often did, to illustrate the answer. He said there's a man. He was walking this dangerous pathway from Jerusalem to Jericho. Got robbed. Beaten up, left for dead, thrown in the ditch. And as Jesus is telling the story, he, he purposefully picks certain characters. He said, hey, a priest came down, saw the guy, saw the situation he was in. And for whatever reason, and there might have been good reasons. Maybe he was late to, 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 to his job, you know? Maybe he didn't want to go over there because it would have made him ceremonially unclean or something. But this priest walked on the other side of the road and left the man. Levite, we say it this way, you know, he's somebody growing and learning under the priest. Sees the man in the ditch. Sees the man in need. Maybe, maybe sees the man and he goes on the other side of the road. But then Jesus, what he does is, he purposefully, uh, he purposefully picks out a character that, that would have caused a reaction. He says, then there was a Samaritan and they hated the Samaritans. Jews hated the Samaritans. Jews, Samaritans didn't get along. He said, he came along. And it says, he saw the man. And, and it literally says, he took pity on the man. And he went over to the man. And using his own resources, he, he bandaged the man. He poured oil on his wounds. He put the man on his donkey. He took the man, maybe taking himself, making himself late for what he was heading for. And he took the man to an inn. He paid with his own money for the man to be able to stay. He said, I'll even pay if he needs to stay longer. And, and, and Jesus, as he describes this act of kindness, he looks at them and says, now you tell me who was the neighbor. The man said, well, obviously the one who had mercy, <laughs> the one who showed kindness. You see, the power of that story is this. And I don't think it's just like, well, go be like the Good Samaritan. I think the power of the story is to realize that Jesus is the ultimate Good Samaritan in our life. That the gospel says that when he passed by us, he saw that we were in need, could not help ourselves, needed rescued. And when we realize Jesus came to our rescue, then what happens to us is this. As we walk along life's road and we see people who need kindness, we leverage our life for their benefit as a response to what he did for us. And can I just tell you something? I think if Jesus was telling that story to us, he would use different characters. I honestly do. I think he would say a gospel response of kindness might look something like this. There was a man beaten along the road from Norton to Akron. A preacher went by a community leader went by. They walked on the other side. The man in the ditch happened to be a Democrat. And along came a Republican. And he saw that man. You see, you cannot detach the teachings of Jesus 
from real stuff that we're walking through, guys. And the fact of the matter, I think, is Jesus telling that story. He says that a Republican or Democrat who truly experiences the gospel is going to leverage their life for the sake of. You can fill in anything you want there. I just pick a political illustration. You see, followers of Jesus, guys, are going to be the kindest people on planet Earth in the country because the impulse of their heart has been trained by receiving the kindness from God. Can I just, I just want to be, I want to, in a culture that is all about demanding their rights, we follow a king who gave up his rights for our benefit. There's something wrong when our impulse looks just like everybody else. Guys, there's something wrong when that's our impulse. And what's wrong is that somewhere we've stopped diving into the richness of the gospel. Can I just tell you this? It's also how we're gonna make a difference. You don't even have to agree with what I'm getting ready to say, but I believe it to my toes. It's how we're gonna make a difference. If God's kindness is the very thing that leads to gospel turnaround, then why do I think sometimes, why do we try to legislate change in people's hearts? Why do we try to argue to change someone else's behavior? Why do I somehow arrogantly believe that change in our culture is gonna come because I'm demanding my way. If God and his kindness leads the gospel turnaround, and I am the recipient of that kindness, why would I not, why would I not stand a reason that that's how a movement of change, gospel change might happen? You know, there's a, a writer, Eusebius, in, it was around 300 AD, but he was talking about time of famine and war in the Roman Empire. And as people are literally fleeing the cities, the plague and war and fame and all these things are going on, he, quite frankly, and I think interestingly, begins to write. And one thing that kind of pops out is there was a Roman ruler whose name was Julian, who made an observation that while everybody else was fleeing the difficulty, there was one group of people who ran into it. They ran into the messiness of it. And that was those who called themselves followers of Christ. By the way, Julian was somebody who despised Christians, but he made this observation. He said, just as children are coaxed with cake, so have these Christians enticed the poor to join them by kindness. Strangers they have secured by hospitality. Like he's watching what's going on. By affecting brotherly love, great moral purity and honoring their dead, they've won the multitude. And if you know anything about this point in time and what Julian said, he goes on to say this, they did this not only for their own, but they did it for all, even those who were opposed to their way of life. You see, here's what I believe, that somehow gospel kindness is me extending what I experienced from God. And just as his kindness leads to repentance, what if our kindness led to gospel turnaround? It's interesting, right? It begs the question, what does it mean for us to be kind to people who are different than us, maybe annoy us, 
have different political opinions than us. What does it mean? <laughs> Let's just make this right now. Let's just make this, don't make the Bible something detached from what we're going through right now. What does it mean? There's a second response, and that's this, and, and boy, if the first one's not challenging, this one is. The second gospel response is this, I want you to write it down this way, is that when the gospel begins to ignite, transformation happens in this insane, you ready? I'd write it down this way, and radical willingness to forgive. Now, I was purposeful with my words. Look at Ephesians chapter four. It says, be kind and compassionate to one another. We already read that. And then what's the word? Say it out loud. Forgiving what? Forgiving each other. What is a mark of someone who has experienced the gospel, been changed by the gospel? It's an insane, use that word on purpose, insane. In other words, when you forgive this way, people are gonna think you're out of your mind. And it's a radical, not seen very often, willingness, willful decision in response to forgive people who've hurt us and offended us. Why? What's the rest of the verse say? It says, be kind and compassionate to one another. And here's what it says, forgiving each other. And then the next part is key. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Quite frankly, that's the only motivation, the only power that I know of to forgiving that way that the power and the motivation to forgive those who've hurt you is to have experienced the insane, <laughs> radical forgiveness that is available in Christ. Look what it says, Ephesians 1. Let's just, let's just read it together, Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, there's our word, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. The gospel says this, I wanna be clear. When we say yes to Jesus, we're forgiven of our sins. That our sins and the penalty and consequence ever since been totally paid for. Totally paid for. Now listen, this is not a free pass or a divine overlooking of our offenses. I think a lot of people even grow up in church and they feel that way. Yeah, God forgives me. Write this down somewhere. There's no slide for it. No one takes sin more seriously than God. He's not like the divine grandpa rocking in the chair, right? You're, and, and you come, oh, grandpa, I messed up. It's okay, Johnny, let's just move on. That's not God. Like no one takes our sin more seriously than God, which is exactly why Jesus died. Jesus died on the cross to pay the full price and penalty for my egregious sin against God. That's the gospel. Colossians says it this way. Colossians says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Here it is. He forgave us all our sins. Well, how'd that happen? Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, he paid the price, which stood against us, so all of our sin, there's a price to be paid. How did he do that? Well, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Someone who has experienced the full and heavy truth of the forgiveness of their sins will realize that it is their sin that nailed Christ to the cross. You see, and then all of a sudden what happens is there becomes this robust response. Think about it this way. 
if I came to your house, I'm not gonna, but if I came to your house, right, and you had all your bills like laid out there on the kitchen table, and I picked up one of them and said, hey, I'm gonna pay this entire bill. I'm just gonna pay it off. What would your response be? Go ahead, what would it be? Just think it up. Say it to somebody beside you if you want. What would it be? Well, the right answer would be, I don't know. Because it would depend on which bill I picked up, right? <laughs> like, like if I picked up a bill that was like, hey, you got a $5 charge at the library, I'm gonna pay this, don't worry about it. You'd be like, well, thanks, Dan, you know. Uh, that will leave you five extra dollars from Aiden's $10 bill he gave you, right? You'd be like, well, I appreciate that. But you're not gonna be like indebted to me or anything for life. But if I picked up your house mortgage and said I got the whole thing, like let's say you owe $200,000 in your house or something, and I'm like, got it. Like your response is gonna be quite different, isn't it? You see, that's what happens in the gospel, guys. Like if, if I see what Jesus did for me as simply he picked up a bill, he picked up my tab, and it was kind of like, well, I'm kind of messed up. My response is like, oh, thanks, man, I appreciate that. But when I realized that when he died on the cross, it was all nailed there, that he paid the full debt, all of a sudden it changes the response. There's a story Jesus told in Matthew 18, it was just that, he, he, it illustrates this, that a king had a, had a servant who owed him millions of dollars. And he's like, man, we gotta call that debt in. And the guy comes and pleads for mercy, I don't have the money to pay it. I, I, there's no way, please. And the king cancels the debt, forgives him. But here's what he said, Jesus tells this story, Matthew 18, you check me on it. That same servant goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes him some money. Nothing compared to what he owed the king. And that servant refused to forgive his fellow servant. The king found out about it. He was beside himself. He was like, how could you not forgive him this smaller debt, having been forgiven this enormous debt? That's forgiveness. That's gospel transformation, guys. That's the only power I know. I have this little illustration. If you ever have come into my office, you've seen it, right? Uh, I, I'll say it this way, a lot of people come in and, and marriages or whatever and, and there's a need for forgiveness, somebody's hurt the other, offended the other. And their, their relationship's a train wreck. And I draw this on the whiteboard for them, I said, well, what happens with most of us, the engine that drives the train of our life is what happened to me. So some of us, that engine's been driving your life for a long time. Past circum, I've been hurt, you did this, and it makes me feel. I don't want to forgive you. I'll never forget it, right? And you don't deserve it. And you might be right, you know? And that leads me to act a certain way. And the truth is, I understand, like, that's, that's pretty human and normal. And it's like, I remember a couple coming to my office and they told me these things and I drew this train. I'm like, yeah, that's, I totally get it. And, and the lady looked at me and she said, well, what's the answer? Because it's, it's not working. And I'm like, oh, this isn't going to work. This is going to end up in a train wreck. I said, the only solution I have is that you do something that's almost insane and radical and that somehow you change the way this train looks and instead of what happened to me in the engine of your life, you put what God did for me. That's the gospel. 
and he forgave me. And that the next car is my response to that. That's worship. That what God did for me elicits a response and I'm gonna let my feelings hop in the caboose. <laughs> you see, that's radical insane forgiveness. You see, how do we extend this kind of radical insane forgiveness? It's by experiencing it. It's insane, I know. <laughs> People are gonna think you're out of your mind. I already know that. Every time I do this illustration, I know that. Uh, it's radical, it's like, well, you don't see that very often, I know. It's willful, sometimes it's a decision, it's not a feeling. And yet it is a response to what I've received from God in the gospel. Here's the way the King James Version says Ephesians 4. It says, be ye kind, some of you learned it this way, one to another, I love this word, tender-hearted. Say that word out loud, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. I believe this, guys, the insane and radical forgiveness of God is what tenderizes our heart. It tenderizes, that literally he says, when it tenderizes your heart, all of a sudden then you're ready to forgive in a way that someone might not deserve. You see what I'm saying? You see, I think the, the issue is for some of us, the gospel stopped tenderizing our heart. And we've somewhere stopped remembering that we follow a savior who said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he happened to say that while he was on the cross. You see, this is gospel transformation. This is what it means to change it's a response to what God's done for me. There's one more, one more. And, and in this last one, we're, we're literally gonna fly through. But the last one is simply this, that it shows up in an extravagant and cheerful, I wrote giddy, generosity. Now we don't need to spend volumes of time on this because we've already talked about it. But 2 Corinthians 8 says this, but since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and the love that we've kindled in you, see that you excel in this grace of giving. I love the wording there. It's a gift of giving. And then he says, I'm not commanding you. He's like, I'm not commanding you to be generous. I wanna test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And then he says this, here's the motivation. <clears throat> For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What's he saying? He's saying followers of Christ who immerse themselves in the truth of the gospel are generous. Why? Because they know what it's like to receive the generosity from God through the gospel. That's why Zacchaeus, we talked about this a few weeks ago, Jesus came to his house, showed him acceptance, transformation happened in Zacchaeus. And he began to sell his possessions and give them to the poor. And he says, for anybody I've ripped off, I'm gonna pay him back four times. That didn't happen because Jesus said, you must do this. That happened because he had been changed by the grace and the power of the gospel. That is the power of gospel transformation. Can I ask you a couple questions today? Have you ever said yes to the kindness, the forgiveness, and the generosity God extends you to in the gospel. God loves you. His kindness is available to you. He leveraged his life for your sake. 
he paid the bill. He emptied the bank account. Have you ever said yes to Jesus? Yes, Jesus, I want you to be savior of my life, Lord of my life. Right there where you're at, living room, kitchen, wherever you're watching this, why not? Just bow your head and say, God, I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died for me. I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died in my place and I wanna say yes to Jesus as the only one who can save me, as the one who paid my debt. Here's the deal. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to talk to you about maybe some next steps. <laughs> For a lot of you, maybe you're like, man, I'm a follower of Christ. Then can I ask you a question? Would you say that you have an impulse of kindness that selflessly leverages your life for the sake of others. Can I ask you this? What are you dwelling in? What are you dwelling in? Are you dwelling in the good news of Jesus so that an impulse of kindness that's received from the good news is something that extends from your life? Can I ask you this? Have you had some opportunities recently to willfully forgive, even in ways that maybe people around you say, that's crazy, <laughs> that's radical. What's in the engine of your train? Let me ask you this. Would the people around you describe you as extravagantly and cheerfully generous? The solution to that is not that you go out and be kind and forgiving and generous. That's not the solution, that you paste those things onto your life as virtues. The solution is that you immerse yourself in the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in a way that the fruit of kindness, the fruit of forgiveness, and the fruit of generosity begins to grow in your life. And so God, thank you for your kindness you're a kind God. In a world that is desperate to see gospel kindness, I pray that you'd help us to so immerse ourselves in the kindness found in the gospel that that kindness would begin a movement around us of gospel kindness. That you would help us to so be mesmerized by the forgiveness offered in the gospel that we would somehow demonstrate a radical, sometimes a forgiveness that some people think that's crazy. And God, I pray that a generosity would flow from us that is simply a small picture of the incredible generosity that we've received from you in the gospel. Thanks for loving us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.